0: Gospel of John, and as we've been studying in this chapter, the chapter begins with Jesus providing a miracle, a miracle of feeding the 5,000, which is more like 15 or 20,000, because the 5,000 is just the figure of the men. It doesn't include the women and the children. And so Jesus receives five loaves, five barley loaves, and two pieces of fish from the little boy, and he multiplies them supernaturally to feed thousands of people. This is how the chapter begins. Jesus has become very popular, very popular because of his miracles. His miracles are spectacular, right? When you give stuff away to people, that makes you very popular. He's giving away free bread, free food. But that's not the only thing that makes him popular, that spectacular miracle. He heals the blind and the deaf. He makes the lame walk. We've seen the healing In the prior chapter, beginning of chapter 5, where he made the man who was lame for almost 40 years walk. Jesus is extremely popular. The crowd is following Jesus because they want more miracles. They want more bread. But Jesus did not come to this earth to be popular. He came to do the Father's will and to offer salvation to a lost and dying world. Jesus is not like many religious leaders today who are attention hogs. Attention hogs. They love the attention. They crave the attention. So they're willing to compromise the Word of God, to even change the Word of God, because people aren't going to like it. And priority number one is to have the crowd. That's not how Jesus operates. Jesus is ready, willing, and able to thin out the crowd, which is what He will do today, because the crowd is before Him for the wrong reason. They've come to Jesus for the wrong reason. He corrects them. He says, you misunderstand who I am. You're wrong in the way you perceive me. I'm not a mere miracle worker. I'm not a mere bread maker. Oh, he is a miracle worker. He is one who who supernaturally produced bread, but he's infinitely, eternally more than that. He says... You come to me for the wrong reason. You come to me because you want more food. That's what we studied last time. In their unbelief, the crowd thinks only of the physical realm, not of the spiritual realm. Their unbelief makes them blind, so they don't see who Jesus is. They just see his miracles. They see a man, a man that does interesting things, spectacular things, but a mere man because their unbelief has blinded them, and so now they see, they think by sight and not by faith. You see the paradox there. Unbelief makes you blind so that you perceive by sight and not by faith. This is how the people are thinking as they approach Jesus. So Jesus points them to the spiritual bread that he offers. In verse 33 of John chapter 6, we saw last time Jesus' words where he said, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He is thinning out the crowd because the crowd doesn't like these words of Jesus. Look at verse 41 of chapter 6. Therefore the Jews were grumbling. They were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down Out of heaven. When John uses the term the Jews, he usually uses it to mean not all Jews, but unbelieving Jews who were opposed to Jesus, especially the religious leadership. We know from verse 59 that Jesus is giving at least part of this sermon, this bread of life sermon, he's giving at least part of the sermon in the synagogue in the synagogue at Capernaum. So here the, the the term Jews probably means the religious leaders. We've seen this map before. This is the the top arrow there is Capernaum which is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee that was Jesus's home base. That's where Jesus is giving the the at least part of this bread of life sermon and then about 30 miles or so southwest of that is Nazareth, where Jesus is from. So 30 miles, say, say from here to Johnson City. That's the, the distance between where Jesus is preaching, there in the synagogue in Capernaum, and from where Jesus was raised. Remember, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, down in the southern part of the land of Israel, down in Judah, in the region of Judah. But he's raised in Nazareth. That's where his family is from. And so the religious leaders were grumbling because Jesus was equating himself with God. He was putting himself on the same level as God. That's this phrase, I've come down from heaven. They didn't believe Jesus. They didn't believe him. They thought, no, 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 no. no. What are you talking about? Putting yourself on the same level of, of, of God as God, coming down from heaven. We know where you came from. You came from Nazareth, just down the road. We know you. You've grown up. We know where you grew up. We know your parents even. You didn't come from God. You came from Mary and Joseph. They think physically. They think of the physical realm, not of the spiritual realm. They're blinded by their unbelief, and so Jesus corrects them. They can't even perceive the spiritual realm. In their unbelief, they are offended at Jesus' words, just like the synagogue official's From Nazareth, where Jesus was from. Mark 6 reads like this. Jesus came into his his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And where is this wisdom given to him? And What is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as... These performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. This is 30 miles down the road in Nazareth, this event that's described in Mark 6, at the synagogue in Nazareth with the religious officials there. The Greek word for take offense is the Greek word a a akandalitso. And Paul then uses this same word, but in noun form, to describe the gospel message itself. The gospel message, Paul says in Galatians 5.11, is an offense. Jesus is offensive. Look, 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 look. If you want to present the Jesus of the culture, he's not offensive. He's soft and squishy and nice. Right? The Jesus of Hollywood, he's like this kind of shampoo hair model kind of guy, and he's soft and sweet. That's not an offensive Jesus. Right? No one's offended by the baby in the manger, which we will celebrate in a couple of months. No one's offended by that. People are offended by the Jesus who is a man who is who claims to be sent from God, who claims to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's offensive, especially when that man says, you are the enemy of God. You have zero access to heaven. He's talking to religious leaders in the synagogue in Capernaum. Those are words, those are fighting words. Those are offensive words. The Jesus of the Bible is offensive to an unbelieving world because the Jesus of the Bible requires that we submit a word that is most disgusting to the culture submission i ain 't submitting to nobody i 'm the boss of me. no you 're not, and one day you will know that. The culture is offended our culture is offended at Jesus and jesus 's words if you 're talking about the, word, the, the the Jesus of the Bible and the words of him from the Bible, if you 're talking about the, the words that the culture kind of softens so that they get comfortable with Jesus no, that Jesus is not offensive. The Jesus of the Bible is offensive. His words are offensive to a lost and dying world, to a rebellious world, and it's the same thing that we're seeing here in John 6. They're offended. That's why they grumble. That's why they are dissatisfied with his phrase that he has come down from heaven. So in the next few verses, Jesus caters to them. In the next few verses, Jesus caves. You think that's going to happen? In the next few verses, Jesus responds to their disbelief, and he makes crystal clear. He doesn't double down. He triples down. He quadruples down. He makes crystal clear. I am who I said I am. God in the flesh. Me. There is no other access to God. This this will be a most offensive message to religious leaders. Keep reading in verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. As we've seen before, Jesus equates, he uses two phrases, he equates two phrases, he uses them interchangeably. Coming to me and believing in me. Those are interchangeable phrases that Jesus uses. They mean the same thing. In verse 44, he's saying, No one can come to me, no one can believe in me unless the Father draws him. No one can believe in Jesus unless the Father draws him. Last time we studied the doctrines of free will, of election, of predestination, And foreknowledge. So I won't repeat all of that today, other than to say we are chosen but free, other than to say that the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity coexist. Exactly how that works, that's not my business. That's his business. And my brain is too puny to figure that out. I don't think we fully understand how we are chosen but free how the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity coexist. I don't think we, fully, we can fully understand that this side of heaven. That side of heaven we'll understand a little more, but I suspect we won't fully understand it at all. And that's okay. We don't fully understand the Trinity. Is it three or is it one? Yes. Right? Three distinct persons in the Godhead, but they are so united they are one. How, how, how does the hypostatic union work? How does God, the infinite, eternal God, who is omnipresent, be limited in time and space in a baby, as a baby in a manger? How does God, who is omniscient, who has never learned anything ever, because He's always known all the knowable, how is He described as a young boy learning, how does that work? Is this one person. It's not two separate persons in a body. It's one person, fully God, fully man, and in one person, two distinct natures, hypostatic union. Hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning nature. And it's a union of two natures. There are some things in the scripture we don't fully understand and that's because you're not God. I love the words of the old German theologian Terstigen. A God who is comprehended is no God at all. That's okay. We proclaim these things and we believe these things because they are revealed to us by God. You are chosen but free. The sovereignty of God And the free will of humanity coexist. And in verse 44, Jesus is emphasizing the sovereignty of God. In a few verses, he will emphasize the free will of mankind. But in verse 44, he says, It is impossible, impossible for anyone to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, unless the Father draws him. In order for us to be saved, God must act. It is a sovereign act of God. That we are saved. You don't save yourself. Your faith doesn't save you. God saves you. Now, He uses your faith to do it. But God saves. It is His sovereign act, it is an act of God. You know, in contracts, often in long contracts, there's something called the force majeure clause. It's old French that says something happens unexpected, then we don't have to perform. Right? You enter into a big 100-page contract. You know, these two companies, they enter into a big contract. Buried at the end is the force majeure clause. And it, it, it says something out of our control we don't, have to, we don't have to perform. And they always say, act of God. right? A strike, a war, an act of God. They mean like a, like a hurricane, a tornado. <laughs> they don't really use act of God anymore in contracts cuz no one knows what it means cuz we don't believe in god anymore but what's interesting to me is that act of god is always viewed as something crummy something horrible a hurricane or tornado that's an act of god how about something beautiful like your salvation that's an act of god god saves you by and through his sovereignty he initiates salvation You are unable to come to God unless he draws you. You are unable to even understand the gospel message unless he draws you. Before we come to Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually blind, blinded by sin. We are enslaved in the darkness of the devil's world system. We are unable to even perceive the things of God. Look how the apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The word there for natural, natural man is sukikas anthropas. Sukikas means it's translated here natural. It has the idea of of the world or unspiritual. It's not that the unbeliever can't understand the words. Jesus paid for your sins. And if you trust in Jesus, you will receive eternal life. Jesus is the one who paid for your sins and He was resurrected. That's who Jesus is. He's fully God, fully man. You are condemned to hell as a sinner. But God loves you. And so if you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, you will be saved. You will receive eternal life. It's not that those words are not understandable to the unbeliever. It's that they're meaningless. I mean, The words are understandable academically. But so what? That's the attitude. Unless God opens our mind to perceive that which is meaningless to us, the gospel message, unless God as an act of grace opens our minds, exposes the truth to us, It's silliness, Paul says. It's foolishness to the unbeliever. We need God to act. And so God the Father graciously draws people to Him, draws us to Him, and He does this through the convicting ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit makes the things of God meaningful, significant to the unbelieving mind. Have you ever given the gospel to somebody and they look at you like you have three heads? Eh? Is the resp- I mean, they don't do it that, but you know, that's, the, that's the attitude. Eh? They just think you're speaking, you know, you're from Mars or something. That's because they've rejected the convicting ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Later in the book, Jesus will teach of the convicting ministries, but let me just spend a couple minutes on it here. In John 16, 16 verse 8, we read this, And he, the he there is the spirit, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Greek word here for convict is elekko, elekko. And in this context it means to expose to expose as wrong. We can't even understand the significance, the meaningfulness of the gospel message unless God, as an act of grace, exposes our wrongness to us. And so you see three areas where the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever here. You see it with respect to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, some view this as the convincing Ministry of God the Holy Spirit. I mean, in a sense it convinces us, but it's primarily a convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit where He proves and displays and exposes our wrongness. Jesus says the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, meaning the Spirit exposes the unbeliever to the truth that he is engaged in the most dangerous the most destructive of all sins. When you go 76 miles an hour in a 75 mile an hour speed zone, that's a sin. You're violating the law. Now the consequence for that sin, we're, we're we're to obey the law unless the law requires us to disobey God. That's an exception. But a speed zone of 75 miles an hour is not a disobedience of God's. So we're supposed to obey that speed zone, right? You're doing 76 miles an hour and a 75, that's a sin. That has one consequence. But the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ, which is a moral decision, it's not an accident, it's a moral decision, it's a question of the will. The sin of rejecting Christ for salvation is a sin that brings the most intense, extreme consequences of any sin. It is the most dangerous and destructive of all sins because the consequence is eternity in the lake of fire. And so the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, the sin of rejection of Jesus Christ. The sin of disbelief is ultimately what condemns people to hell. Then we see the the Spirit convicting the world concerning righteousness, meaning the Spirit exposes the unbeliever to the truth That only Jesus is righteous. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. Only Jesus is righteous. And his resurrection and ascension validate his righteousness. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we're wasting our time. Let's go do something else on Sunday morning. Let's go play golf. Let's go watch the such and such. Let's do something else. If he wasn't raised from the dead... But if, in fact, a man was raised from the dead who prophesied in advance that he would be raised from the dead in fulfillment of the Scriptures, and he ascended and sits with flesh and bones and hair next to the majesty on high, to use the language of the book of Hebrews, if, in fact, that is the case, and it is, then that man must be worshipped. That man is not merely a man, but he is fully God, fully man, and so the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ validate Jesus' claim of righteousness, which no one else can claim, right? Muhammad didn't claim to be righteous. Buddha didn't claim to be righteous. Joseph Smith, who created Mormonism, he's not righteous. None of us are righteous, but one. And the resurrection and ascension, what Jesus says is Those validate his claim of righteousness. Then the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment, meaning the Spirit exposes the unbeliever to the truth that the ruler of this world, the devil, is done. He's already been judged. The execution of the judgment is delayed, but he's already been judged. It's finished. He was judged on the cross, and so the world is destined for the destiny of its ruler, The world is destined for the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his fallen angels because the world follows their leader. A leader who's already finished, who's already been judged, who's already been declared loser. Just read the end of the book. God doesn't just barely win. God decimates the opposition. Revelation 19, Revelation 20. I mean, it's not a contest. God's victory is overwhelming. Revelation 20. The devil will be cast in the lake of fire forever, the place of eternal torments. And the world which aligns itself with the devil, that is the world's destiny, so don't align yourself with the devil, is part of the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We can't even understand the gospel message, the significance of it the meaningfulness of it. It's just blah, 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 blah. But for the sovereign grace of God the Holy Spirit in convicting us, exposing to us our wrongness. That's what Jesus means when he says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. When we read John 6 and John 16 together, we see that the way that the Father draws people to Him is through the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It is a teaching ministry that God the Holy Spirit does. In grace, the Spirit teaches us. First, as unbelievers, He teaches us so that we will believe for salvation. And then as un- excuse me that's for the unbeliever. As believers, there's still the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He teaches us so that we will believe, so that we will trust Him, so that we will trust the Lord as opposed to trust the world because the world's selling all kinds of stuff. Now, the only thing the world's selling is feel good because that's all they got, pleasure. That's all they got to sell. God says, trust me. I'm talking, to, to, we're talking about believers right now. Trust me. And the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit makes the things of God perspicuous, clear, understandable, meaningful, not just to the unbeliever so that the unbeliever will trust in Christ, but to the believer so that we will trust the Lord every day. Right? And you got that temptation over there, and you're like, yeah, that looks good. Man, that looks good. And God says, don't do that. Don't even think that. It's an act of trust to trust in the Lord Verses wandering off to the pig pen, where we used to be. And the Holy Spirit teaches us through the Word of God. Teaches the unbeliever, so the believer will have faith in the Lord. Teaches the believer, so the believer will walk daily for sanctification. One is for salvation, one is for sanctification. The Holy Spirit does His convicting ministry, His teaching ministry, through the Word of God. He uses individuals to communicate the Word of God that has already been memorialized for us in the Bible. But in the end, it's up to us. It's up to us as to whether we believe or not. Now, there have been occasions where the Father himself has engaged in this convicting ministry or teaching ministry. Like in Matthew 16, verse 13, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's the Son of Man. He's speaking in the third person, right? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We cannot even understand the things of God because we are blinded by the devil's world system. We can't even perceive them, but for the gracious act of God. And so back in John chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus uses the phrase hearing and learning. He says, everyone who was heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Hearing and learning is a process. It's a process. What we're getting here in John chapter 6 is this deep theology about soteriology. Soteriology is salvation, the doctrine of salvation. And what we're seeing is that it's a process Jesus said says everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me it starts with you know maybe maybe someone told you about God and you're like "Eh." someone told you about Jesus you're not sure and then you say you know what maybe someone tells you about God but they don't tell you about Jesus right maybe you told somebody hey I think we come from monkeys I think I believe in evolution I think we're 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 an accident. We're the product of random evolutionary chats. And someone says, no, there is a God. And God created you. And God loves you. But let's say that person doesn't talk about Jesus. I mean, that happens sometimes. And so you say, well, I believe that. I believe what you told me about God. But, you know, that person wanders off, and, and you didn't hear about Jesus from that person. Or maybe you're looking up at the stars. You don't do this many times in a big city because there's so many lights you can't see a star you look up there and you think it's a star but it's a it's a satellite you do it you can do it out here in the texas hill country you look up at the stars and you say god if you're out there i want to know you it's some point of being positive towards god maybe it's because someone told you that told you about god maybe it's because you looked up at the stars maybe it's whatever you look at a beautiful buck and you say that can't be an accident that majestic creature God, if you're out there, I want to know you. So you're positive towards God. Then God brings someone into your life to communicate the word, not just about God in general, but specific to salvation, specific to Jesus. And the Spirit works through the convicting ministry. He teaches you. He opens your mind. He gives you an eye to see, eyes to see the things that are not seen so that you can perceive the things of God That's hearing and learning, where the Spirit teaches you through the convicting ministry that the Spirit engages in, and He uses the Word of God to do it, either oral or written. If you accept what the Spirit teaches through the Scripture, then you come to Jesus. You believe. Remember, coming to Jesus is the same thing as believing in Him. Let's keep reading in verse 46. There Jesus says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Here Jesus says, you can't know God independent of me. It's very offensive. This is a very offensive thing for Jesus to say. But Jesus is not concerned with the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. He's he's never heard of the 11th commandment, because there is no 11th commandment. I'm not saying we should be rude when we present the word. It's just don't compromise the truth because you're afraid someone's going to not like it. This is a very offensive thing for God to say, for God in the flesh, Jesus to say to the religious leaders. These are religious leaders who think they know about access to God, who think they know about God, and Jesus says you can't know anything about God independent of me. It's impossible. What Jesus is saying here is... He is equating himself with God. He says, no one has seen the Father but me. No one is from God but me. I mean, why does he say that? He says, no one's from God but me. That's that, that, That's the gist of what he is saying in this passage. How can that be? I mean, how about all the Old Testament prophets, right? Elijah was sent to Israel. God sent Moses to Israel to free the Israelites or to... To, to Egypt to free the Israelites out of Egypt. God sent Isaiah. God sent Habakkuk to the people. He sent all kinds of people. God sends missionaries. God sends pastors. God sends you to go present the gospel to someone. How can Jesus say he's the only one who's been sent? It's because he's fundamentally different than every other human being. You see, all those people that I just described as being sent from God, they repeat what God has told them. Right? When you go give the gospel to somebody, you're repeating what God has told you through the Scripture, what God has told you through someone else who shared the gospel with you. You're repeating the words of God. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus speaks the things that he speaks, and he does it based on personal knowledge. Not secondhand from... right. We have secondhand knowledge. I'm not using the phrase "secondhand" in a, in, a, in a derogatory way. This is the Word of God, but He gave it to the apostles. And the apostles, in this case, John, recorded it for us, or the prophets. So God gave it to a human messenger, a human messenger recorded it, and now we read it. Not so with Jesus. It's personal knowledge for Jesus, because unlike any other human being... Jesus has always had eternal presence with God since eternity past. He is the only human who reveals the Father based on personal knowledge. He has always had perfect intimacy with the Father since eternity past. Jesus is the only human who comes from the Father's abode, from heaven, because He's always been in heaven as God since eternity past. Jesus is the only human who has seen the Father as God. He has always had eternal fellowship with the Father. John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. As we studied that word explained, it is where we get our English word exegete. Jesus exegetes the Father. He explains Him. He reveals Him to us. In verse 46, Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh as he has done many, many times before. Then in verse 47, Jesus emphasizes free will. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Jesus is talking to the crowd. He doesn't give this message about eternal life, believing and receiving eternal life. He doesn't say, all right, You guys over here who the Father hasn't drawn to me, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm only going to talk to these over here who the Father has drawn to use the language of verse 44. He doesn't say, I'm not going to talk to you over here who the Father hasn't given to me, to use the language of verse 37. Given to me or the Father drawn. He didn't do any of that. He addresses the gospel message to the whole crowd. Everybody, knowing full well, because he's omniscient, that a huge swath of this crowd hates him and will never believe in him. But in his love, he presents the gospel message to everyone because salvation is available to all. And the only reason anybody goes to hell is because they have refused, as a matter of their will, it is a moral decision And so Jesus presents what he has done already four other times. This is the fifth time in this conversation that Jesus has emphasized the need to believe in him. It's the fifth time he has presented it to this full crowd made up of those who love him and those who hate him. One commentator has called the Gospel of John the Gospel of Belief because the Greek word to believe, pistuo, is used 98 times in this book exponentially more often than any other book of the New Testament. Believing in Jesus isn't just thinking that he exists. It's not just thinking he's out there. He was a cool guy. Yeah, he was a man. He was a man who walked the land of Canaan. That's not enough. That's not what it means when it says to believe. It means to trust. That's what pistou means. To trust, to rely upon, have confidence in. To have faith in. And then you put pistou in the context of what Jesus is saying. You must trust that he is your access to heaven. That he is your access to God. That he is your access to God's life. Jesus is the source of forever life. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. So that one may eat, it, eat of it and not die. As we've seen throughout this conversation between Jesus and this crowd, because Jesus fed the 5,000 supernaturally, the crowd has Moses and manna on the mind. Moses and manna on the mind. Their mind automatically goes to the events of Moses, where Moses provided, actually God provided it through Moses, But they think of Moses providing the manna in the wilderness. Remember the supernatural bread that was on the ground. And they said, what is it? That's what manna, manna in the Hebrew means. What is it? They come out of their tents. It's on the ground. What is it? Manna. Their minds automatically gravitate to manna and Moses. And they even said in verse 31, this is what the crowd said, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. The crowd is interested in Jesus only because they want Him to give them more bread for their bellies. Their eyes are exclusively set on the physical realm. So Jesus draws them to the spiritual realm. He says, I offer better bread than Moses. The manna in the wilderness provided only temporal, temporary physical nourishment. They ate the bread and then they died. The bread that I offer is bread that is permanent, forever life. He says here in verse 50 that those who eat the bread that he offers will never die. They won't die. You will never die. Everyone in this church today, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, you will never, never, ever die. You believe that? You will never die. Jesus isn't talking about physical death. Everybody will physically die. Even Jesus physically died. Jesus is drawing a distinction between the first death and the second death. So we're going to study that just for a minute. Believers are spared from the second death. Not the first death. The first death everybody goes through. Believers, unbelievers, even Jesus himself. The first death is physical death. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Here we're going to see the first death and the second death. We're going to see the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Because these things are linked. Death and resurrection. Revelation 20 verse 6. It reads like this Blessed and holy is the one who has a part. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 6 over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Remember the last time Jesus promised over and over and over, John chapter 6, to raise them on the last day. He did it in John chapter 6, verse 39, verse 40, verse 44. That's the first resurrection. When Jesus raises his own, that's the first resurrection. It saves Jesus' own. It saves believers, those who have believed in Jesus. It saves them from the second death. The first resurrection saves you from the second death. The second death is eternal judgment. Jump down to verse 12. Verse 12 reads like this, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. So stop there for a second. This is the second resurrection. You don't want to be at the second resurrection. This is the second resurrection that is being described here. It's the resurrection of the dead. That's why you see the dead mentioned in verse 12. The dead mentioned, excuse me, two times in verse 12. And the dead are mentioned again in verse 13. This is the dead being raised from the dead. Those who are spiritually dead being raised from their physical death. Those who have eaten the bread of life are not dead Those who have eaten the bread that Jesus offers are spiritually alive. They're not dead. They're not spiritually dead because they have eternal life. Keep reading. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The second death, the first death is physical death. Everybody's going to die. I wish it weren't true. But that's a product of sin. Jesus himself died, not because he was a sinner, but because he died for us. Everybody physically died, believers and unbelievers. That's the first death. The second death is what is described here. It is eternal separation. Remember, death is separation. Physical death is the soul being separated from the body. Spiritual death is our spirit being separated from the spirit, capital S, God himself. Here you have... The second death, which is eternal judgment, it is eternal separation from God. We're born spiritually dead. When the baby is born, we're spiritually dead. And then when we trust in Christ, when we eat the bread of life, then we become spiritually alive. And that is spiritual life that you have forever. This description here of the second death is someone who died physically and never trusted in Christ, never ate the food, the bread, the bread of life that gives you eternal life. And so they died the way they were born, spiritually dead. And so in eternity, they remain spiritually dead. They, they remain separated from God forever. This is eternal punishment. This is eternal existence with the one for whom the lake of fire was prepared. It is eternal existence with the devil and his angels as Jesus described the lake of fire in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, that it's prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the second death. It is eternal existence, living with the devil, living in separation from God for eternity. Look at Revelation 21, verse 8. 21, verse 8. It reads like this. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God views the one who has not been forgiven, the one who is still in his sins, the one who has not eaten the bread of life, the one who has not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of her sins and the receiving of eternal life. God views that one as a sinner. We're all sinners. But when you trust in Christ, Christ, God imputes Christ's righteousness to you. So now when God looks at us, when He looks at me, He looks at Christ's righteousness. And so I'm declared righteous, justified, to use the language of the New Testament, Paul's language. God doesn't see me as a sinner, though I am. He sees me as righteous. He sees Christ's righteousness, which has been transferred, imputed to me as a product of my trust in Christ. But the one who refuses, who refuses to trust in Christ, the most dangerous, the most deadly of all the sins, refusal to trust in Christ, that one remains a sinner in God's eyes. He never received the righteousness of God imputed to him. And that's why they are described this way in verse 8 as cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars because that's their identity. Their identity is not justified. It's not the righteousness of God. It is the sin that has characterized them and they haven't had the righteousness of God imputed to them. But what I really want to focus on In verse 8 is the last phrase, which is the second death. There are two deaths. To sum all this up, there are two deaths and there are two resurrections. There's the first death, which is physical death. We're all going to go through that. Then there's the second death. The second death is for unbelievers only. Everybody experiences the first death, believers and unbelievers only believers experience the first resurrection. Two deaths, two resurrections. First death, believers and unbelievers. Second death, unbelievers only. Eternal separation from God. First resurrection, believers only. It's for us to be resurrected with new bodies, just like Jesus' body. The difference between his resurrection and ours is he was first, we're second. The first resurrection is we are resurrected with bodies that can enjoy, because God is a God of joy, that can enjoy the kingdom of God for eternity, that can smell and inhale that celestial air in the celestial kingdom forever. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is for unbelievers only. Resurrected with a body that is fit exclusively for God's wrath solely for God's vengeance a body that will endure this is the this is the horrific thing about the lake of fire it won't consume the unbeliever he won't be annihilated it's a body that is raised for damnation forever for eternal punishment and so it's a body that is fit solely for the wrath of God. That's the second resurrection. The prophet Daniel puts it this way in Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. I hope you share the gospel with your children, with your grandchildren, with your friends. If you care for them in the slightest, if you love them in the slightest, You will warn them. You will warn them of the vengeance of God. Is God a God of mercy and love and compassion? No doubt. But he is also a God of judgment, fierce wrath because he takes sin very seriously. And ultimately, the sin that casts someone into the lake of fire is the sin of refusal to believe in Christ. Christ loves his audience even the religious leaders who hate him. He loves them all. And so he gives them the gospel over and over and over and over again in John chapter 6, like he did in John chapter 5, to a different audience. In John chapter 5, it's an audience of religious leaders in Jerusalem. John chapter 6, we have an audience of religious leaders in Capernaum and others who follow those religious leaders. Look at verse 51. Verse 51 reads like this, I am the living bread that came, that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When Jesus says, eat my flesh, of course he's not talking about cannibalism. He's using a word picture. He's using a figure of speech He's not talking about cannibalism, nor is he saying that the communion table, which we will celebrate uh, next Sunday, he's not saying that the bread is transformed supernaturally into the flesh of Jesus, into the body of Jesus. He's not saying either one of those. Instead, he's using a figure of speech. He's using a word picture that is vivid and, to be sure, extreme. He's saying that the physical bread the physical bread that the that the exodus generation ate the manna they ate it it nourished them when we eat physical bread and, and bread is the concept of food it's not just mrs. baird's bread right i mean it's it's just it's a general concept of food the exodus generation when they ate the bread when we eat the bread it gives us life maintains our life no food you die so Jesus is saying, yes, physical life is maintained by bread, by food, but then you die. But the bread that I offer, Jesus says, is bread of eternal life. And so eat my flesh. doesn't mean cannibalism. He's using a vivid word picture for the bread of life. When you accept me, When you eat me, the living bread from God, in other words, when you accept me as the source of spiritual life, then I give you eternal life and you will live forever. This is not quantity of life. Eternal life that Jesus offers is not living forever in terms of existing forever. Everybody's going to exist forever. Eternal life is about quality of life to live forever with the author of life. Verse 51 is really a summary of what Jesus has been teaching, what Jesus has been telling his audience. But there's something else in verse 51 that is new. You see it? Look at verse 51. There's something new that he's introduced here. In John chapter 3, verse 16, the father is described as giving the son for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So in John three sixteen, the Father is described as giving the Son. But Jesus is introducing something new here in verse 51. He's saying, in addition to that, in addition to the Father giving the Son, I give of myself, I voluntarily give my flesh, To my enemies. To those who hate me. To those who love me. To the Jews. To the Gentiles. I do it voluntarily. And you can't help but think when you see this word flesh which is the Greek word sarx you can't help but think of the prologue. And the logos became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same flesh Jesus gives His life. What He's talking about here is more than the Father giving the Son for us, giving the, the Father ordaining that the, Son's, the Son will give His life. It's the Son saying, I voluntarily give it because I love you. You see, the love of Jesus is as eternal and intense as the love of the Father. We're seeing here sacrificial love. That's what love is. We believe in penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means punishment. Jesus paid the punishment that is due you, the wrath of God. He bore the, bore the wrath of God for you. He came to pay a debt he didn't owe because you owed a debt you couldn't pay. So that you will not bear the wrath of God forever. He bore it for you, penal. In Texas, there are various codes. There's the water code, there's the property code, there's the tax code, there's the penal code. The penal code is the code for punishment. That's where you open up and you say, oh, this crime is a misdemeanor and it's one year imprisonment. That crime is a felony and it's five years imprisonment. That's the penal code. The atonement is penal, meaning punishment, substitutionary, that's what we're seeing here. Jesus says, I give my life voluntarily for my enemies. Substitutionary, atonement, meaning it satisfies the Father. It fulfills the Father's demand for judgment for your sin. Because what you deserve and what I deserve is the fierce, furious vengeance of God. But God in His great love, God the Father sends His Son, and the Son in His great, boundless love says, I want to give you a way out. And so I come voluntarily. Me. This is what we see here in verse 51. He gives his life willingly for the sheep and for the wolves, for the friends and for the foes. It is through Jesus' substitutionary death that God offers eternal life to the world. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the love of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're blind to that. Jesus loves you. God the Father loves you. God the Holy Spirit loves you though you are the enemy of God. A sinner by nature. A rebel by nature. Subject to His fierce wrath. God loves you despite that. And the evidence of his great love is that he came to pay for your sins. When the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, What must I do to be saved? He asked Paul and Silas, What do I do to be saved? Remember, they're imprisoned. And God supernaturally frees them from the prison. And the Philippian jailer is going to commit suicide because back then, if you were a jailer, a, a, a soldier, and you were in charge of a prisoner and you lost your prisoner. It was your head. He's going to commit suicide. And this is in, in the book of Acts, Acts 16. And and the apostle Paul and Silas said, no, stop. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He knows that they've been presenting a message of salvation. And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Simple. Simple. Simple easy. You say, that's too easy. Well, it wasn't easy for Jesus. He gave it all for you. He gave His life for you. And as an act of love and mercy, He makes it easy for you. Faith in Jesus doesn't merit you anything. Don't think that you earn salvation through your faith. Faith is the expected thing that God expects of you. So you can never walk around and say, I'm a woman of faith. I'm a man of faith. So the people will praise you. Praise me for all my great faith. You know how much faith you need to be saved? Just a little more faith than no faith at all. So don't praise yourself for your faith. Praise God for His salvation. For His great mercy. For His great love. I'm available after the service if you'd like to visit about it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your salvation that you offer us through your Son. We thank you for your love. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his submission to you, his obedience to you, and for his willingness to give his life for us. We praise you for these things. We praise you that you have recorded your word for us We ask that you challenge us to obey you, to honor you, to submit to you. Help us be a light to a lost and dying world. Remind us that we will stand before your son soon and give an account of our lives. We pray all these things in his name, the name of his majesty, the king of the kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.